Welcome to the VBAC Link podcast. We are a team of expert doulas trained in supporting VBAC, have had VBACs of our own, and work extensively with VBAC women and their providers. We are here to provide detailed VBAC and cesarean prevention stories and facts in a simple, consolidated format. When we were moms preparing to VBAC, it was stories and information like we will be sharing in this podcast that helped fine-tune our intuition and build confidence in our birth preparations. We hope this does the same for you. To hear more about us and to hear our individual VBAC stories, be sure to check out episodes one, two, and three. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Hello to our favorite listeners. This is Megan, and I'm super excited. We've got Julian with us, too. It's super rare for us to be together, but we always take advantage when we are able to be together. It's Wednesday, and we're excited to be with you today. We've got episode 14, which is mind-blowing to us. Like, when we started this, we were just so overwhelmed with all the love and support. That's right. We, we are just so overwhelmed and excited and, and happy for how well we're being received by you guys. We cannot believe the response we're getting from all over the country and all over the world. We've got messages from um, Australia and Canada and we got listeners in India and New Zealand and it's just really cool. Today we have somebody from not too far away but from the state of Washington and Megan why don't you tell them a little bit about our guest today. Yes we were so elated when we were contacted by Tisha. She's a professor in public health at Central Washington University. She contacted us seeking to share her story and wonderful information about her journey. Today she's going to be telling us more about her unplanned cesarean and how that affected her as well as her diagnosis of PTSD and how she navigated healing from her birth during the pregnancy and preparing for her VBAC that ended up being really, really hard that she had to fight for. Tisha, we are just so excited to have you. We would love to open it up and have you share your full story. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for having me. And I, um, you know, I'm always interested in helping women and their families think about how to stay informed, how to be empowered decision makers. Um, That's what I do for a living. And I love any opportunity I get to share that with with other folks. So yeah, my name is Tishra Beeson. I'm a professor of public health, as you mentioned, and my research is in maternal and child health, um, mostly in preconception care. So I um, do a lot of work with helping women and their families think about pregnancy and how to prepare for them and to set them up to really thrive during that um, part of their life. That's so important. Um, I've been married to my husband for 10 years, and um, we have two little girls, and you'll be hearing about their births um, today. But uh, we live in a small rural community in eastern Washington. Um, It's a university town. There's uh, only one hospital in the area, and there's kind of few resources when you think about um, the birth community and some of the support that, um, like I said, women and their families really need when they're thinking about that time in their lives. So um, I think I like to start my story often talking about my own mother because this is the frame of reference that I had going into my pregnancy. So um, 
my mom also had two C-sections. Um, and when we were growing up, my brother and I were told that that was normal, that that was kind of the way babies were born. And um, the only, like, photos I ever saw of birth or anything um, were all surgical births. And the only reason I bring that up is that I think sometimes if that's in the back of your mind, that's all you know, um, that becomes normal, and you have kind of different perceptions of birth going forward. So um, that was always kind of in the back of my mind, but I knew it wasn't something that I personally wanted. And so, um, of course, in my career and in the research that I do, um, I learned that a surgical birth is sometimes necessary, but often um, overutilized, at least at least in the U.S. Um, and so when I got pregnant, um, and my husband and I really were very intentional about this pregnancy, and we tried to do all the right things, and it really was a great pregnancy. I felt really good and really healthy. Um, we talked about, you know, what are the things that we could do to help um, basically assure the best outcome for a healthy delivery that didn't end up in a surgery because, like I said, I, I knew that that's not what I wanted. I knew it was really kind of a hard um, road to take, and so I wanted something different. And so in doing that, I, I thought a lot about um, the midwifery model of care, and unfortunately in our town there was no midwife currently practicing. And there were a few in kind of some of the surrounding areas, but um, that meant traveling. And so I interviewed a few midwives and uh, ended up choosing somebody who was about an hour and a half away and also over a mountain pass, which is really hard in the winter. Um, so we traveled for every prenatal visit an hour and a half each way. Um, and, of course, toward the end of the pregnancy, that becomes more frequent. So you're talking about, you know, every two weeks or every week, like making that really big commitment of a three-hour drive, you know, both ways um, for prenatal care. And so that was really kind of hard on us. And I, um, I'm really thankful that we had the flexibility to do that and we had some of the resources in our, in our jobs to be able to take time off to do that. But I know that that's not realistic for every woman. Um, and that just, I think, highlights some of the barriers that, um, you know, other women who might be in communities like mine might be facing. So anyways, a long story um, leads to um, the fact that we had planned for a home birth, and um, my midwife was going to come to our home, and um, I had hoped for a water birth, and so that was kind of in my dream birth. If I could, you know, dream it up, that's what I wanted. And um, we got toward the end of my pregnancy, and it was like 38 or 39 weeks pregnant. And I naively, as maybe most first-time moms think, I thought, well, for sure my baby is going to be here by 40 weeks. <laughs> and and uh, so I had, I had like a birth tub that was delivered, and I, and I think I even told the woman on the phone, I was like, I need that birth tub by 38 weeks pregnant because I'm sure my baby is going to come like right around there. And um, she did deliver it on time, but my baby didn't come. Let's see, I got into my 40th week. I got into my 41st week, and I think I was like 41 weeks and three days, and I was just exhausted and really irrit irritated and emotional. And um, 
I went and saw my midwife, and she explained to me, of course, that there's this range of normal, that babies come when they want to, and, um, you know, it could be 42 weeks by the time a uh, baby decided to come. And so I was really kind of discouraged, and I asked her, is there anything we can do? And um, she suggested that we could strip my membranes. And so she did. I consented. And... Um, you know, it was fine, and I, I came home and decided to go for a walk. So my husband and I went for a walk, and on the walk, I think I got, like, I don't know, a tenth of a mile around, you know, our neighborhood, and my water broke right there in the middle. And it was um, kind of dramatic. It wasn't like that big gush that you think of in the movies, but it was definitely noticeable, and I had to kind of, like, waddle back to the house because I was, <laughs> you know, leaking fluid in the middle of our neighborhood. Um, and so I, I was so excited. I was like, my water broke, this is going to happen. Um, but I had not had a single contraction. I actually didn't even think I had Braxton Hicks contractions up until then. I had like no understanding of what labor contractions felt like. And so (laughs) it was like hours and hours before I felt anything. And I called my midwife and I, I had had a doula. Um, and she also was not local. She was coming from about an hour away. Um, and so I called her and I said, like, I'm just not feeling anything, but I know for sure my water broke. Um, and they were like, well, just, just rest and, you know, see what happens. And so we did, I went to sleep that night. I woke up the next morning kind of feeling, um, cramping and feeling a little tightness, but nothing painful nothing that I had to work through yet. Um, And so it was about, like, 15 or 16 hours later before things really started to pick up. Um, My midwife came to check me. um, My doula came. And then things started to push into active labor. So, um, yeah, I think I labored for, like, maybe another 10 hours at home, um, got in the water, kind of tried to do as much as possible to pick things up. And... um, you know, things were pretty manageable. I felt really good about the pain or whatever sensation I was feeling at that point. Um, And then things really picked up and my contractions went from like, you know, maybe four or five minutes apart to like on top of each other. Like I never got that break in between that I know a lot of women talk about in their labors where you, you know, it's really intense for a peak and then it, you know, subsides and you get like, 30 seconds or a minute to recover, I got to a point in my labor where that did not happen. And I just had these constant, like, contraction on top of contraction. And mm-hmm. that was really intense and really um, hard for me to manage because I went from almost nothing to this, you know, really intense period. Um, and at that point, my midwife decided, you know, we should check you <laughs> because things are obviously picking up and you're in the, you know, some pretty serious intense contractions. And she said, I think you're really close to 10 centimeters. And so, wow. um, Yeah. So um, things were really, really heavy and really intense. And this was uh, about maybe 24 hours um, until, you know, after my water had broken. Um, And so she checked me and she thought I was like nine or 10 centimeters. And at that point, she was like, well, hold off pushing. And interestingly, I 
didn't ever feel that urge to push. Um, and so we, we kind of held off pushing, and she actually asked me to sleep, if that's even possible when you're in active labor at almost 10 centimeters. <laughs> um, she asked me to sleep, and um, I think my husband, like, made this huge sigh of relief because he's like, oh, thank God we can sleep. Um, <laughs> and he, like, immediately passed out. And I remember being so irritated that he so easily fell asleep when I was, like, still in so much pain. <laughs> but um, but we tried to rest so that, you know, my body could finish doing the work to get from 9 to 10 centimeters and I could get through a transition, which I knew was still ahead of me. Um, and it was hours of still, like, dealing with these really heavy contractions one on top of each other. And so my midwife said, um, you know, it's possible that maybe you're having some swelling, um, like cervical swelling. Uh, maybe baby's head isn't in the right position. And so she wanted to kind of help me through a contraction by kind of um, like holding the cervix and seeing what was happening. And um, so she did that and I, that was really painful. Um, and she thought, you know, baby might be posterior at this point, um, which I, I don't know if your listeners have, are familiar with that, but um Posture is basically baby turning the, to face the other direction than what is like typical presentation in um, the birth canal. Right. It's also known as sunny side up. Maybe some people yes. better that way. <laughs> right. And so um, baby was kind of not in like the optimal position for birth, which as I now look back on it, kind of explains why my contractions were so strong and so on top of each other. Um you know, my doula explained it to me as, you know, your body was really working really, really hard to get baby back into the right position. And um, that's maybe why things were so intense. So all to say, um, again, it was hours. It was like 30 hours, 35 hours, 36 hours. <laughs> it was pushing. Yeah, it was pushing like 40 hours. And I, I still oh didn't have that urge. Yeah, that urge to push. Um, baby was still in the kind of not a great position. I still had that cervical swelling and um, things were not looking great. Um, I ended up getting in the water again um, in the birth tub and that really helped. Um, and after a couple more hours, my midwife checked me again and said, I think you're at 10 centimeters. And if you feel like pushing, why don't you go ahead and try? Hmm. Um, and so I, I did. And I was really excited. And my husband was so excited because he really wanted to catch the baby. And so he climbed into the birth tub with me and um, we pushed for um, almost four hours. <laughs> um, oh. And, oh my gosh, uh, you worked so hard. Yeah. A long time. <laughs> yes, it was really, really um, a long labor. It was a very hard labor. Um, and they just never felt baby descend. I think she was, you know, still pretty high. And again, that malposition of being posterior and um, what we later learned, she was asynclitic. So her little head was kind of tucked in the wrong position and made it really hard to kind of fit through through the birth canal. So um, at that point, um, I remember like adamantly saying, I don't care what you have to do, but I cannot go to the hospital <laughs> because I knew in my mind that if a woman who was, you know, 45 
plus hours after her water had broken, had been in active labor, had been 10 centimeters dilated, and had pushed for four hours at home. If she walks into a hospital, <laughs> it's almost guaranteed that they're going to really encourage uh, and recommend a C-section. And I knew that, oh, yeah. again, that was, mm-hmm. that was not what I wanted. Yeah. Um, and so I, was, I said, I don't care what you have to do, but please, please just don't send me to the hospital. And um, my midwives were so great. At this point, a second midwife had come as backup because the labor had been so long. Um, and they were so great and, like, so supportive. But at that point, they kind of said, you know what, it looks like you might need some more resources and tools that we aren't able to offer you here. And it might be time to think about going into the hospital. <laughs> and... Um, I think at that point I already knew that that was the next option. Um, but, I, you know, that's a really hard thing to reconcile when that's so far off of the plan that you hoped for for your baby's birth. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I somehow I think at that point my body just kind of like quieted down. My contractions kind of slowed. Um, I was starting to get that rest between contractions again that I – um, you know, was really helpful, and it actually allowed me to, like, to shower. I took a shower um, at home. I had a really long cry in the shower <laughs> because Aww. I was so Aww. emotional about how I was feeling. Um, but after that shower, I actually felt really good. Um, I packed up a bag, a hospital bag, because I hadn't had one. You know, when you plan a home birth, you don't expect to be going into the hospital, so I didn't right. have my bags packed. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I packed my bag, and I actually felt – pretty good. I felt really peaceful about it at that point. I think I, I was able to kind of move into the place where I accepted that I was going to have my baby in the hospital. And um, luckily, we live very close to the hospital. It was only about a three-minute drive. Um, we, we got there. My midwife had called. It was a non-emergent transfer. Our vitals were amazing. The baby's heart rate was perfectly, like, exactly what they hoped it would be. My vitals were great. There was no indication that there was, you know, infection, no fever, um, none of the things that would be concerning um, in a transfer like mine. Awesome. And yeah, and so yeah. Um, I actually walked. My my husband said, "Well, I can drop you off in the ER because this was it was late at night. It was about nine o'clock at night." And he said, "I can drop you off at the ER entrance, and then they can take you back to labor and delivery." And I was like, "No, let's just park the car. I'll walk. I'm fine." <laughs> and, um, <laughs> And I'm, you know, I'm here. I am in active labor. I'm walking into the hospital entrance, and there's like a flurry of like four or five people in scrubs that are, you know, running around. There's like a, you know, a, there's a gurney and there's a wheelchair, and there's all these people going. We're waiting for this woman in labor, and she's, you know, her water <laughs> broke, and it's like chaos, you know. And I'm just like quietly walking into the emergency room, and they're like, "Wait, is that you?" <laughs> and, and I said, yeah, um, I'm the transfer from the home birth. And, and they're like, oh, my gosh. And they, like, made me sit in the wheelchair, and they wheeled me back. And I was like, I'm really fine, but okay. And um, I actually have nothing bad to say about the hospital staff. They were really wonderful and amazing. And our nurses were so welcoming and wonderful. I knew um, – you know, I think they knew that this wasn't in my plan, and so they were just really accommodating and very um, warm to me. So I got this back and awesome. I met the OB. Yeah, yeah. 
I met the OB on call and, um, you know, he was like a little bit concerned that I had waited so long to come into the hospital, but we told him, you know, our vitals have been so great. I have progressed all the way to 10 centimeters. I've pushed. We just have a baby that's in a, you know, bad position and I'm exhausted at this point. And so he said, okay, let's um, call the, uh, I think it was a nurse anesthetist who came and was able to do um, an epidural for me. And, um, but before they called it for the epidural, the OB said, let's check um, baby's position. And so he tried to actually manually turn the baby. Mm. And I had, you know, over 50 hours of labor and those 30 seconds where he tried to turn baby were the most painful of the entire process. And I, oh my gosh, <laughs> yes, I remember like just kind of like screaming and yelping in pain and saying like, please stop. This is terrible. And, um, uh, you know, he said, yes, that is a very wedged baby and it is definitely posterior. And, um, and he said, asynclinic. So, we knew that baby's in a bad position, but he said, let's get this epidural. Let's give you some time to rest and see what happens. And um, at that point, he um, gave me about 30 minutes to rest, which was not nearly enough at that point. And he came back and said, I really believe that a C-section is your next best option. And um, obviously that wasn't my preference, but I think I was so exhausted at that point and so, um, feeling kind of vulnerable and out of my element that I just said, okay, I'm ready to meet my baby, however it needs to happen. Um, so we wheeled back to the operating room and, uh, waited for my husband and, um, you know, he came and joined me kind of up at my head and as I, um, you know, got the spinal anesthesia, um, the OB, the surgeon, started to make the incision. And I looked up to my husband and I said, I can feel this. This is painful. And it's not just pressure, how they talk about, you know, um, you're going to feel the pressure. It's not going to take the sensation completely away, but it should take the pain away. And I said, no, this is painful. This is burning. Like, this needs to stop. And, um the anesthesiologist was so kind and, you know, he said, she's feeling this, we need to, you know, do something else for her. So he gave me a nerve block, which did help. Um, but at that point, I was kind of starting to panic because I was, you know, exhausted. I was, my birth plan had changed so much. And now I was feeling the pain of this surgical procedure and kind of starting to have a little bit of um, some anxiety in the middle of this Oh, my gosh. Um, surgery. Yeah. Uh, and so um, the OB, he was really great. And he said, you know what? I don't want you to worry. I want you to, you know, take a breath because your baby's going to be out in 15 minutes. This is going to be uh, a really, really quick procedure. And um, he made the incision and um, started to, you know, try to help my baby out and pull baby out. And it took... Um, a very long time and I could feel them, you know, that tugging sensation of trying to pull baby out. And um, I later learned that it took two people pulling on my baby and one push it, one person pushing kind of like up from between my legs to get baby's head out. Um, So three, three people had to, um, you know, physically help my baby out because she was so wedged in 
to um, to my pelvis. And uh, again, that just kind of added to my panic because what I thought was going to be really quick to meet my baby ended up being a 45-minute procedure. Um, and uh, when I heard her cry, of course, that was like just this emotional release of everything I had been feeling um, for the last, well, for the last 42 weeks, but certainly for the last, you know, day and a half or two days of labor. Um, and I remember her coming, you know, they brought her around to me and I had asked for skin to skin in the OR and they were so great to give that to me. So I was really pleased that I got to have her put on my chest. Um, I got to have delayed cord clamping, which was a, another thing I really wanted her to get all of her cord blood and all the blood from the placenta. Um, and so they, um, you know, were able to do that. And then they brought baby back to me and, um, when I saw her, it was just such a profound moment. It probably is the one thing I remember the most about her birth is that moment of meeting her and seeing her and recognizing her, um, which it kind of makes me emotional to talk about it because I think for first-time moms, you're like so – you just can't imagine what your baby looks like. You're so excited and you dream about them and you think like, will they look like me or my husband or will they have hair or, or will they be bald? And you have all these imaginations of what your baby's going to look like. Um, but you have no idea. And when I saw her, it was like, I knew her. And that is just such a profound moment for me. Um, so let's see, we kind of moved from there to the recovery room. And I do remember that as I was being wheeled to recovery, um, the nurse and I think at least one of the other surgeons or assistants who were in the room uh, said to me, uh, that was the hardest C-section I've ever had, I've ever attended. <laughs> that was the hardest surgical birth I've ever seen someone go through. And, um, you know, that's not really what you want to hear when you're, rec- you're about to recover from that birth. Yeah, but, holy um, cow. But, yeah, it was really kind of um, – I think it took everybody by surprise at how hard that was going to be. And um, I also heard from at least two people that day and at least another nurse who said, gosh, you just are not meant to have a vaginal birth. You are never – you're going to always have to schedule C-section. And actually one person kind of jokingly, and I think trying to lighten the mood, I think someone said to me, like, well, I guess we'll see you here in a couple of years for your next C-section. Oh. Oh, and, that is awful. That is yeah, awful. Yeah, it really was um, kind of an insensitive um, comment. But, yeah. um, you know, I, I think that maybe lends to um, my really purposeful and intense desire to have a VBAC the second time around. Yep. Um, and I will say that in the kind of weeks and months following uh, my first baby's birth, which I do have to say, my daughter, when she came out, was perfect. Like, her APGARs were amazing. She latched perfectly. She breastfed um, and, like, gained weight, like, off the charts. I mean, she was just the healthiest baby, and I was so glad, um, you know, to see her have a really you know, beautiful, healthy delivery in the long run. Um, although that process was, um, you know, somewhat traumatic for me. Mm, yeah. 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 So in the weeks and months following her birth, um, I started to feel a little bit of 
Well, I had really bad insomnia, so I could never sleep, um, which I at first I chalked up to, well, I just had a baby. Um, and I have a newborn that I'm taking care of. But as it started to grow, I had a really hard time falling asleep. I had, um, you know, some just kind of negative thoughts about my birth. Um, I didn't really like to talk about it to people. I avoided the subject whenever possible, um, which is really hard to do in my career when that's kind of what I do on a daily basis is talk to women and with women about planning for pregnancy and birth. And that was really hard for me to do. It was hard for me to do my job. Um, and I started to kind of feel like I was a hypocrite because here I was with all these tools and resources and knowledge and research, and my birth ended in the way that I knew I did not want for myself or for my baby. And so I had these kind of really negative self-beliefs about um, myself as a mom and feeling like I failed her. And these are all really classic symptoms of postpartum PTSD. Um, I didn't know it at the time, and I couldn't have identified it if someone asked me that. But um, now knowing what I know and, um, you know, getting some, some help and some support through this, I realized how, um, you know, my experience was really one of trauma. And so um, I was able to see a therapist. Um, Actually, I didn't start seeing her until I got pregnant again with my second daughter um, because some of these feelings were still lingering and I was like dreading the idea of giving birth again. (laughs) And, um, you know, she helped me kind of talk through and think through like, why am I feeling this way about this birth? Um, And she helped me identify that it was likely that I was experiencing PTSD. So, um, you know, moving into my second pregnancy, again, I I had a really healthy pregnancy. I felt really great. I had high energy, um, but I kind of had this emotional and mental, I don't know, um, kind of block in my mind thinking about the birth, and I couldn't get excited about it, and I didn't want to think about it. And again, these are kind of the classic symptoms of PTSD is avoidance and intrusive thoughts. Um, and so through, you know, some of my treatment and, um, it was suggested that I look at getting some support from some other moms that might've had similar experiences. And so I reached out to, um, it was actually, we don't have a local chapter of ICANN where I'm located, the International Cesarean Awareness Network. Um, and our local chapter is actually like two or two and a half hours away from where I live. So I was never able to like go to meetings or meet people face to face, but they do have a really active online community. And that's really where I found the source of my kind of social support in working through my kind of PTSD um, experience. Um, And so that was really, really helpful. I also Um, got connected with like a local prenatal yoga group and um, some of the moms there who um, maybe had had similar experiences and we were able to talk through that together. And so I really kind of felt that like affirmation and um, support to help me correct my beliefs about myself and those feelings of failure and those intrusive thoughts. Um, I was able to kind of work through with some therapy, with some social support and just kind of really working hard on self-care. Um, 
So during my pregnancy, my second pregnancy, I was really excited because I knew I wanted to be back and that was so important to me, but I knew I kind of had an uphill battle. Um, I knew that the hospital that I had delivered at in our county um, had a policy that did not allow for uh, women to choose to um, deliver vaginally um, if they had had a prior cesarean. They could if they had previously also vaginally delivered, um, but for a kind of a primary VBAC, that their policy was that um, they wouldn't accept patients who wanted to VBAC. So I knew that that wasn't an option, or if it was an option, it would be really hard, and I didn't want to have that fight. Um, and so I knew I needed to find an OB or another provider who was VBAC supportive. Um, our, we do have a midwife in town now, um, and I was really excited to meet her, and we've actually become very good friends, and she actually did all of my prenatal visits, um, which was so great because I got kind of the coordinated care between a midwife and an OB um, in the next county over who um, was very supportive of VBACs and really, really, um, you know, happy to help me pursue that. And they coordinated care between the two of them, which was so great because I got to see a midwife, I got that midwifery model, and then when it came time to the delivery, um, time for the delivery, I was going to see this OB who um, would support my VBAC wishes. Um, I also was able to um, deliver in a hospital that had a very high rate of successful VBACs and a very low cesarean rate, um, which, you know, not many people are able to locate that data or able to, you know, um, to know what their hospital C-section rates are. But um, that was something that was really important to me that I asked that question and I, you know, got on the phone and I called administrators and I called staff and I said, I, you know, I really want to make sure that I'm going to um, be able to give birth in a place that's going to be supportive of a VBAC. And I was really happy when I found that. I did have to travel about an hour away um, to go to this hospital, but again, um, that's one of those things that I think women in rural communities, uh, unfortunately, that's something we have to navigate. Um, and like I said, it, for me, I had the resources and the flexibility to do so, and I really wanted to make that happen. So um, I got to 40 weeks again. I got to my due date. Um, I knew I, you know, it was likely I was going to go maybe a little bit past that. Um, I went to 41 weeks again. I went to 41 and a half weeks again. And um, my OB, who again, like I said, was very supportive of the VBAC, started to talk to me about, um, you know, we might need to be thinking about an induction or about maybe even scheduling a repeat C-section because I'm just not seeing you make any progress. And it's now, you know, very nearly 42 weeks um, gestation. Oh, no. And, yeah. <laughs> And he was, you know, he made it really clear that he didn't feel comfortable with me going past 42 weeks, just given my prior history. Um, and so he said, you know, if by Friday um, of the week, I, you know, my 42nd or the end of my 41st week, approaching 42 weeks, he said, if by Friday we're not seeing any progress, I, I would like you to consider a repeat C-section. And mm -hmm. I said, okay, but you you have to give me until Friday. I'm not going to consent to anything <laughs> until, like, Friday at midnight. Good and for you. Good for you. Yeah. yeah. 
And so um, he said, okay. And he said, well, just go home and rest. And um, I had done a non-stress test earlier that week, so we felt really great about the baby. Um, she was really growing perfectly. All our vital, like I said, vitals were great. Baby looked perfect. And so we just kind of went home. And um, at that point, I was really emotionally and physically over being pregnant. Um, I, you know, had already gone through this whole long journey of some anxiety and PTSD and kind of mood disorders. I was really in in this place where I just wanted to have this baby. I knew I was having to fight for this be back and I wanted to get, I wanted to get this going. And so um, my husband and I actually took time like early one morning. It was like four or five in the morning. I don't even know. But my, my eldest daughter had woken up early and so we were up early and my husband and I just sat down like on our living room couch and we just like sat together and talked about our you know our birth plans and our hopes for our baby and I just said you know what I just feel like I just feel like I need to cry (laughs) and I did I just like had this emotional I won't say it's a breakdown but it was definitely this like release of like I just want this so much and I have so much invested in this and I just needed to like release all of those you know emotions out and I wanted my husband to hear that and to to be with me and to experience that with me and he did and that was a really powerful moment for us um and you will not believe it because I I don't have any evidence for this but the anecdotal evidence for me is that there's something about a mental and emotional block that once that's released, your body can follow. And I had that experience. So I had this, you know, four o'clock or five o'clock in the morning, I had this intense, like, emotional experience, this bonding with my husband, thinking about our baby. And I kid you not, two hours later, my water broke. I believe that 100%. (laughs) I believe that. You, like, have to hit a wall sometimes. (laughs) Yes. And and it was amazing, actually. And when it happened, I was like, oh, my gosh, I – I must have needed that because here's my body. It's kicking into gear. It knows what it's doing. And um, I contractions picked up right away, which I was so happy about. Awesome. If, yeah. Yeah. If you remember in my first birth, I didn't have that for like, you know, like 18 or 20 hours. And so I was so happy when um, I felt those contractions pick up and they were fairly intense. So I knew that things were happening and I was progressing. Um, my midwife who had seen me for prenatal visits, um, came over, and she was actually going to act as my doula, um, which was so great because I, I had seen her all through my prenatal. Um, she knew about my PTSD. She knew um, kind of my birth plan and my wishes for, for this birth, and she was so great, and I was so excited to have her there. So she came over. She monitored the baby. Um, she took my vitals, and she said, everything's looking great. Just rest because you have a lot of work ahead of you. And um, so I labored at home for like six or seven hours and she came back to, to see me and she monitored the baby. She checked the heart rate again with a Doppler and she thought, you know what, things are sounding like maybe baby has um, a little bit high of a heart rate and, you know, um, she didn't think that it was worth staying home any longer and that we should maybe go ahead and get started because we still had an hour drive to the hospital, um, which again was in the next county over. 
so we had to travel and we didn't want to kind of have to risk it by by waiting too long and so she sent us to the hospital and she said I will, I'm gonna follow you and be right behind you I'll see you when you get there um, and so we got there we got checked in um, and my doula never showed up or my midwife doula and and we're like, what is going on? So she later called us and she said, you will not believe this, but in the 20 years I've been practicing, I've never had to call a backup doula or backup midwife. But she says, I have food poisoning and um, I don't think I'm going to be able to make your birth. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so um, so she says, I'm going to call a backup. You'll love her. Like, she's, she's great. You know, she'll be there in 20 minutes and – um, I was I, at that point I was like I think I'm okay like we're still getting checked in like just let her you know we'll call her when we're ready for her um, and so I got checked in and I talked to the nursing staff and I reminded everybody I'm going for a VBAC vaginal delivery is what I'm really after so please be aware of that when you uh, when we talk about some of my our preferences and our wishes for our birth and they were so great. Again, the nursing staff was really supportive. Um, the, uh, there was an OB resident who was on call that night. And so she came in and talked to me um, and made sure that she was really aware of what we wanted for our VBAC and said that my OB would be in in the morning to check on us if we made it that far. And so um, uh, at that point, she had checked me and I was maybe five or six centimeters and dilated and then um, we, I just continued to labor um, with my husband in the room and about an hour later they checked me again and I was at seven to eight centimeters so I thought great we are making awesome progress I'm so happy and um, you know things were moving pretty pretty good and then um, kind of my worst fears had happened and I started to experience that same pattern of contractions that were on top of one another and not feeling that period of rest in between them. And um, luckily at that point, the backup doula had come and she was wonderful. And, you know, she really helped me, um, you know, kind of get my mind right. And she helped do some hip squeezes and really helped me through some of that. Um, but I think, I don't know if she knew this in the back of her mind or what, but she um, felt like maybe this baby was also posterior. Um, and doulas are awesome she, like that. <laughs> they are so. She was just, just so amazing. She she must have known. She must have known because she did suggest some new positions and you know um, just things that she thought would help encourage the baby to turn in the optimal way. Um, but she never said the word posterior, which again, I don't know how she knew that, but that would have been a huge trigger for me because that was my biggest fear this whole time was that I would have another malpositioned baby. Right. And I, I had spent my whole pregnancy, like literally like on all fours, leaning over the counter, like doing everything I could to encourage a baby to be, uh, you know, to have an anterior baby. And so had she said to me, like, oh, your baby must be posterior, I think I would have lost it. And mm -hmm. she never she never did. She never used that word. She just kept saying, you know, really quietly, gently whispering to me, like, let's try a new position. Let's move here. Let's, um, you know, encourage baby to come down. And she was just amazing. So it was meant to be that she was the doula to support me through my labor. Um, and at that point... 
you know, it was like three or four hours um, of these really hard contractions on top of each other. And at that point, I felt like I really needed some pain relief. Um, and so I, I asked for an epidural, and I'm so glad that I got it because um, I was able to sleep. I got like four hours of sleep. I felt so good. I uh, woke up the next morning, and I actually I, wo- I watched an episode of Friends on my phone. I mean, it was such a different um, process of labor for me um, that it just helped me relax, and it, it let my body do what it needed to do. And by my, the time that my OB came to see me the next morning, he said, you are at 10 centimeters, and if you're ready to push, let's have a baby. And I was so excited, and my husband was so excited, and we got emotional. <laughs> um, and it was just really, really uh, a happy moment to hear the validation that, you know, baby was ready to go. She was low. Um, she At that point, she was anterior again. Um, and she was in the right position and we were ready to push. And an hour later, yeah, an hour later, um, she came out perfect. And my OB said, Tishra, reach down and grab your baby. And he let me pull her out and she came right up to my chest. She came right up to my chest and we just like our little family embraced each other and everyone in the room was like teary and um, it was, yeah, it was really a special moment. There was a couple of residents in the room and uh, another medical student who had never seen a birth before. Um, And as an educator, as someone that, you know, this is, I love to do this. I love to educate people. I was like, yes, the more the merrier, come in, bring all your (laughs) students, bring, (laughs) bring everybody. You need to see this. You need to see this amazing V-Bag. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and so I, um, it was really special, and I was, I felt very, like, celebrated, and, um, you know, just like everybody was feeling like this was a huge victory, and that was um, exactly what I needed to feel like, some healing, I think, from this previous traumatic experience, again, a beautiful, healthy baby, but the process and the journey and the experience through that was painful and traumatic and uh, again, I had to fight through that to get to this kind of feeling of being empowered and victorious um, through um, through my second um, birth story. So um, that's kind of our story and something that I love to share with people because it was um, hard fought, but um, so worth it. Oh, I love it. And one of my favorite pictures that you shared with us is that one where your husband's got Um, his hand on her back and you've got your hand on her head and you just are like reaching up to kiss her and you've got that tear just running down your face. Oh, I just love it. I saw that and I just like felt the emotion right there. It was what an incredible moment. One of the things that I, you know, in sharing my story, people have said, you know, like, well, how are you able to achieve this feedback? And, um, you know, you had all these challenges and, you know, what would you say to other people who wanted to, you know, also achieve a VBAC. And, um, you know, I thought of three things that helped me. And the first was to find some support um, that is specific to um, moms and dads, so or yes. birth partners, yeah. um, who, who are looking, like who specifically know about VBAC. So whether that's a doula or whether that's a support 
network like I found through ICANN or um, a childbirth education class that has some tools and information specifically about VBACs. Um, get something that's really specific to, you know, your wishes and your plans for your VBAC because uh, I really – I really felt like I couldn't have done it alone, and I needed that support. And, and I think that's really critical when you have, you know, some external barriers that make it really hard um, and that constrain, unfortunately, constrain choices that women might mm -hmm. have in their birth. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's really, really important. And then the second thing that I tell people, um, and I would go back and tell myself if I could, is that um, it's your birth story. It's you get to decide how it ends, um, and you get to decide who to invite into your birth story. And, you know, I had a lot of people between my first and second births that would say things like, um, well, the most important thing is that you had a healthy baby. Like, who Ugh. cares if you had a mm -hmm. C, who cares if you had a C-section? Yeah. Like, you know, or it doesn't matter you know, what you had to go through. That is the most important thing is that your baby is healthy. And that was kind of a re- traumatization because it was like invalidating the whole yep. experience that I just had. Exactly and so, right. um, yeah. And so I, to be honest, I had to kind of decide whether I was going to let people like that into my life <laughs> during my second pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I, I had to have some really hard conversations with people, people that I love, people that were in my family or friends of mine or colleagues or whatever. And to say, you know, you know, I, I respect that you have an opinion, but I have to say that at this time in my life, I only need to focus on, you know, positivity about this journey that I'm on. And that's a really hard conversation to have to, for people who maybe don't understand what that's like. And, and so I like to tell women that, you know, it's your birth story and you get to invite people to be a part of it. Uh, and you also can say who you don't want to be a part of it. And, and that's something that I really wanted to kind of eliminate feelings of negativity and just kind of embrace a really positive outlook on it. Yeah. My third is just to, to be really informed and be an engaged consumer of healthcare. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we forget that, you know, and women sometimes feel like birth happens to them. And I mm -hmm. certainly felt like that, like, like in my C-section surgery, like my baby was birthed, yes, from me, but like someone else took her out. And I think sometimes we then become like this passive player in in the health system when really we should be the engaged consumers we're the ones that have the opportunity to make decisions it's our family our baby our bodies and um, sometimes that's really hard to navigate when the odds are stacked against you and so yeah. um, it's it's really hard but I I like to say to like be informed to stay on top of you know the evidence to be um, armed with you know, research and tools. And, and I know it's easy for me to say because this is my world and this is what I do, but there are great resources online, of, you know, that are written for um, people with no scientific or academic background um, to really understand what their rights are, um, to really understand what the risks are and what the potential benefits are and what their options are in birth. So um, I was really lucky that I was able to take a childbirth class um, that was specifically for VBAC families. 
Um, and so there were eight or ten families in our little childbirth class that all had previous C-sections and were intending to VBAC. Um, and that was a really cool experience to get education and information that was tailored specifically for us. And I know that's not the option for every woman, but I, I think there are some tools, especially online, that, that can really um, be helpful resources. For those families in the Seattle area, or even Washington, or even anywhere surrounding the state, Tishra's VBAC course instructor is named Sharon Mazza. She created the Miles Circuit. And for those of you who don't know what the Miles Circuit is, it's one of my go-to methods to get baby in a great position before labor begins and sometimes even for fixing baby's position while a woman is in labor. Anyways, this amazing woman lives in the Seattle area and teaches VBAC Your Way classes. Guys, if you can possibly get to Seattle, check her out. I put a link to her classes in the show notes. For the rest of you, especially those in Utah, Megan and I are launching our in-person VBAC education courses right here in Utah for our local families, and we're also launching a VBAC doula training starting in September. September, we are so excited. Check out our website, utahvbaclink.com for more information. And That's amazing. We are so That's exactly excited. what women need. Yeah, yes. we're so excited to be able to provide that to women here, you know, obviously our local moms, but we're really so excited. So it's awesome to hear that you've had a course like that and that was, you know, a big deal for you and it, it made a big difference for you. Thank you guys for doing what you're doing and for helping kind of create this culture that is supportive of women's options and their experiences through birth, however that ends for them. Um, I think it's so important to empower women to, to be active and engaged participants in their own health decisions yes. yes thank you so much me and Megan were actually just talking about this the other day you know we were talking about birth plans and the significance of them and things like that but you know we we really just feel like the power of the birth plan is not necessarily like in the actual written document but it's the journey you go on learning about all your options and preparing that birth plan that makes you educated and makes you an active participant in the birth and you don't you don't have to feel like it's happening to you because you got educated in preparing your birth plan um yeah. so yeah i love that i love your three points um i agree with them 100 percent. thank you for sharing that yes yeah, thank you absolutely well, thank you so much again for being here with us, and we, we just can't wait to share this episode with everybody. Today we're going to be talking about a myth. We've heard a woman say, my hospital doesn't offer VBAC, so I have to have a repeat cesarean. Informed Pregnancy writes an article about myths, and this is one of them. She talks about, as Howard Minkoff, he's a doctor, and said in the 2010 VBAC conference, it is, un, it is an unrestricted negative right, which means women or really anyone has the right to refuse any surgery at any time. ACOG affirms that restrictive VBAC policies should absolutely not be used to force women to undergo a repeat cesarean delivery against their will. 
There are risks and benefits to VBAC and elective repeat C-sections. Make the right decision for you. Understand your options, know the truth from fiction, and know your legal rights. Get down to the facts. To learn more about these myths, visit informedpregnancy.com slash 13 myths about vaginal birth after cesarean. We are always looking for more inspiring stories. To share your story or possibly be on one of our podcasts, post on social media with the hashtag YWeVBAC and tag at the VBAC link or contact us from our website. Be sure to rate us and share and leave your reviews. We are excited to hear what you think. For families local to Utah, be sure to check out our website, utahvbaclink.com, for more information on our VBAC childbirth classes and doula services. Thank you so much for listening. We are excited for you to begin your journey with us.